Let's read together. Uh, the text for this evening, it's come from Joshua chapter 10. Uh, originally, the, the sermon was meant to cover all of Joshua 10 and 11 because it's a similar theme, but as you can probably figure out, it's quite a big section. So we're going to concentrate our thoughts on verses 1 to 14, and I'm going to make sort of um, allusions to the rest of it. But if you're interested to learn more of the story, can I commend you to go and read the rest of it um, at home? So we're going to read together from Joshua chapter 10, starting at verse 1. This is God's word. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hocham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jaramuth, to Japhiah, king of Lashish, and to Devir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jaramuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to help us quick, uh, to come up to us quickly and serve us, save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by way of the ascent to Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not what is written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for, the whole, for about the whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, as we think a bit more about the verses that we've just read, would you help us to understand not only what they say, but would you apply them deeply to our hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit as I explain and try and preach the truth of your word. Lord, give us all ears that are open and hearts that are ready to receive from you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There are two things I want to draw to your attention um, as we go through this passage. Two truths. And these are the, the kind of the big ideas, really, of the whole sermon. 
This is what I want you to remember. Number one, God the warrior fights for his people. God the warrior fights for his people. Secondly, therefore, point two, therefore we join him in the battle. God the warrior fights for his people, therefore we join him in the battle. So let's look at this this first point, that God the warrior fights for his people. The victory that we have just read about, this battle that Israel went into, was only possible because Yahweh, God, was fighting for Israel. This um, is, is quite an unusual concept, isn't it? The idea of God fighting anything or anyone. In fact, um, particularly in this part of the world, but in general, across the world, the relationship between religion and violence is a very painful mix indeed. Whenever violence comes into the religious conversation, shall we say, bloodshed and feuding is the result. And so often, probably without realizing it, we avoid this idea that God fights and we emphasize other aspects of God's character instead. But we cannot avoid in this passage the truth that God is a warrior who fights for his people. But rightly understood, and what I want to try and get across to you this evening, rightly understood, is that this is a deeply encouraging, deeply inspiring truth about God that we can take home, that we can use this week, that, that, that can interpret our lives in ways that perhaps other aspects of God, um, well, they have a different, different role in our lives. Let's just have a quick recap and, and remind ourselves where we are historically in this story. God, many centuries ago, had promised in his covenant to Abraham I'm going to be your God, he said, and you're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a great name and I'm going to turn you, O Abraham, 90-year-old Abraham, I'm going to turn you into the father of many nations. All nations of the world will be blessed through you. That was the covenant that he made, that God made with Abraham. And as we read in in Genesis, uh, the people of Abraham, the people of Isaac, the people of Jacob ended up in Egypt where they became eventually enslaved under the Egyptians. They were there for many years indeed. But God heard their cry. He heard their oppression. And through the leadership of Moses, God brought them out. He freed them and set them back on the path again to the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham. And so now what we see in this book, in the book of Joshua, under Joshua's leadership, he has taken and chosen to apply those covenant promises to the people, to bring them into the land that God promised. So that's the big picture. And so we saw a few weeks ago how uh, the people of Israel crossed across the Jordan River. You know, the, the waters were, were backed up a few miles downstream, upstream, and they crossed over on dry land. We saw after that how they went round Jericho after seven days. The walls of Jericho fell flat. We saw how they defeated the people of Ai. We've had reference to that in this text. We've seen last week, um, last time out uh, with Noah, how the Gibeonites, this big tribe called the Gibeonites, made peace with Israel. They used deception to do it, but they made peace with Israel. And so at the beginning of our text uh, this evening, we see that this king, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, he heard what Israel had been up to. He heard the story. And he says he feared greatly. He heard the story of Israel's conquest, of their success. And he feared greatly. And so what we see in verses 3, 4, and 5 is that this king, 
king of Jerusalem, uh, forms a coalition. He knows that probably on his own, um, he's not going to have much success. But if I bring other guys into it, other kings, other nations with me, we can form a big force, we can come against Israel, we can destroy them, we can protect ourselves and our interests. We already uh, get the feeling that Israel are punching way above their weight, taking on the likes of Jericho and Ai. And so surely they meet their match in this major regional force. And it tells us there then that this group of kings and all their armies made war against Gibeon in verse 5. Don't forget, based on this treaty that Gibeon had made with Israel, Israel were bound to protect them, to give them help and security. And so it tells us that in response to this, Joshua and his armies arrived ready for battle. And look down though in verse 10, it says that the, as soon as they did this, they arrived for battle. The Lord threw them, that is these five you know, armies together, threw them into a panic before Israel who struck them with a great blow. I'm not an expert by any means in warfare. I haven't read a whole lot about the history of various battles in, um, in the past, but I think it stands to reason that an army that is in disarray, that is disorganized, is all over the place, is a lot easier to defeat than one that is highly organized and standing in their lines and ready. It says the Lord threw the, co- threw the coalition forces into panic and it made them easy to de- defeat. But that's not all the Lord threw. You see down in verse 11 it says, uh, blah, 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 that, um, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them, that is these coalition forces, as far as Azekar, and, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Not only did God throw them into panic to make it easy to rout them, but God threw down great hailstones and killed a whole load of these armies. This might seem a bit far-fetched, this idea of killer hailstones. Uh, Don't try it now. Uh, But if you get home, type in to Google killer hailstones or YouTube, and you will see exactly what I mean. This is by no means a weird uh, one-off biblical event. Apparently it happens quite often. In fact, if you type in killer hailstones, uh, what I did um, this week in preparation, the first three things came up telling me that there were killer hailstones. August 2018, so that was a month ago, right? In Colorado, in North America, um, killer hailstones took out some animals in the Colorado Zoo. Oh. July 2017, in Spain, killer hailstones killed sheep, destroyed cars. There's pictures of the cars. It looks like someone has gone around with a baseball bat and, and knocked out windows and flattened the bonnets. Back in 2013, so it's all quite recent, in China, listen to this, 12 people were killed and 272 were injured because of a freak killer hailstorm. And you can actually see the video of some of these storms and it is like, well, it looks like golf balls being fired out of the sky, coming down at such a great rate of knots. Now you can imagine uh, getting hit by one of these on your leg would be very sore indeed. Getting hit in the head by one of these would probably kill you straight out. So what we're reading here, and, and this, this idea of killer hailstones, is not some sort of uh, uh, one-off event. It seems to happen quite rarely, quite, quite frequently. And, and don't forget, this, this battle would have taken place outside, where there was no protection to run to. I said more people died from the hail than from the sword. 
But look further. We go from the killer hailstones to the sun standing still in the sky. We'll cover this in a few moments' time. But Joshua prayed and said, Sun stand still at Gibeon and the moon in the valley of Aijalon. And as we read, the sun stood still in the sky, sufficient to enable Israel to complete the route. Now, there's various interpretations about this event itself. But just because it's highly unusual, by the way, does not mean it didn't happen. In fact, these unusual one-off events are entirely consistent with everything we've been learning about God so far in the book of Joshua, if not the entire Old Testament. Don't forget when Rahab had the two spies of, of Israel in her house, she said that God, we know your God, the God of Israel is the God of heaven and the God of earth. And as we've already talked about, this God parted the Jordan, this God brought down the walls of Jericho, and this God somehow or other managed to stop the sun in the sky to prolong Israel's victory. Taken together, summarized, it says in verse 14, the Lord fought for Israel. Never been a day like it before or since when the Lord fought for Israel. We have God who fights for his people. And after they are done defending Gibeon, which is what we read in verses 1 through 14, the rest of the chapter then shows us that Joshua took the territories of these five kings. Not only did they defend Gideon, but they went on the offensive and they took one after another after another. Line by line by line. And they cleared the entire southern region in one campaign. At the end of this passage, um, in the end of chapter 10, you don't have it on your, on, your, on your service sheets, it says this, Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, listen, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. God, the warrior, fights for his people. And again, we're not going to cover chapter 11 this evening, but the same thing happens again. More forces, greater still, come against Israel, and God fights uh, for Israel. You know, sometimes we have difficulty reading the Old Testament as, as Christians, the, the Hebrew Bible. Um, we we may ask the question, how much of it actually applies to us? How much of this stuff are we reading has any relevance for us today? And if any of it does have relevance, how do we use it? How do we take it? But one thing is certain, whenever you come to reading the Old Testament in your devotions at home or your, whatever you do, um, one thing is for certain, when you come to the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament is the same God who is present today. You can draw a straight line between the God of the Old Testament and the God of today. God doesn't change. And so what we read about God in the Old Testament stands true for today. And so that means that God today still fights for his people. God the warrior fights for his people today. And this is true of God in the Old Testament. It's true of Jesus, who is the final revelation of God, it's true of him in the New Testament. Whether intentionally or not, Jesus can be misunderstood or misrepresented as someone who is, is gentle 
and mild and loving, in sharp contrast to the God of the Old Testament who is angry and bitter and just goes on wars. But that's to misunderstand and misrepresent Jesus. Yes, he's gentle. Yes, he's loving. Yes, he is humble. But passive, he is not. In the Gospels, even in the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus full of fighting talk. For example, in Matthew 25, Jesus said, one of the reasons why I've come to you people is to separate the sheep from the goats. And as he goes on to explain, the sheep are the faithful people who listen to my word and and put it into action. He says, the goats are those who pretend that they're mine, but they're not. The sheep are going to come with me to everlasting paradise one day, and the goats are going to go to everlasting torment in hell. That's fighting talk. Jesus said elsewhere, I've not come to bring peace, but the sword. That's fighting talk. Jesus elsewhere describes his ministry as overpowering Satan, as taking him down, as capturing Satan, as plundering his house. Jesus describes his ministry as taking back the territory of Satan through military conquest. In the book of Revelation, you might be reading, if you're you're doing the, the community Bible reading journal, we've hit Revelation. And Revelation, the apostle John sees Jesus as, in this vision, as a fearsome warrior as someone who is mounted on a white war horse who is slaying his enemies with the sword of his mouth. Where does all this get us? I think it's safe to say this, whether in the Old Testament that we're reading now or the New Testament, we see that God is the only one who is able to deal with our biggest, most fundamental enemies. He's the only one who can step in and deal with sin, death, and the devil. And we see that taking place here in in Joshua. We see that taking place in the ministry of Jesus that comes to its culmination through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the warrior king. At Easter, we see that all three enemies are defeated. We see the enemy of sin being defeated when Jesus received the punishment intended for sinful people. We see the enemy of death being defeated when Jesus willingly laid down his life only to take it back up again. He says in the Gospel of John, no one takes this from me. I willingly give my life and I will fight and take it back up again. He takes on sin, he takes on death and he takes on the devil. Jesus resisted temptation to the end. He obeyed the Father with every breath of his life. He did not choose to grab at his own glory all those things that Satan wanted him to do. Instead, Colossians 2.15 says that at the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. That is, on the cross, Jesus made the devil toothless. He disarmed him, he bound him, he restrained him. And as we'll read in Revelation in our CBR journals, that triumph will be applied completely with the destruction of the devil at the end time. At the cross, sin, death, and the devil were destroyed. God the warrior fights for his people. For all of us. For God's people. 
I wonder what is your biggest enemy? What gives you the most grief in your life right now? Let's put a few things out of court straight away. It is not your poor mobile internet connection. That is annoying, but that is not your biggest enemy. It is not your lack of parking in the morning, albeit that is very frustrating. These are not your greatest enemies. But be honest with yourself. What are those things that keep you up at night or that occupy your thoughts or fill your mind when your mind is allowed to wander? Is it your lack of self-esteem? Is it some kind of mental or physical anguish or suffering? Is your biggest enemy perhaps something in your past? Like the bogeymon, the bogey monster that rears its ugly head from time to time? Is it your guilt for past sins? Is your biggest enemy maybe even the contemplation of your own de decay and death one day? Is it your failure? Whether it's any of these things or something entirely different, I put it to you that all of these things, all of our fears, all of our anxieties are rooted and find their application in one of the big three enemies, sin, death, and the devil. These are just all individual ways that these things work their way out in our lives. But as we have been singing, and as we, we teach every Sunday in different forms, the gospel of Jesus is this. In his death and in his resurrection, Jesus overcomes all of your enemies. His victory, his supremacy over these enemies is yours when you trust in him. When you have faith that he is the victorious one. And therefore in him, so can you be victorious. That's the gospel. God the warrior fights for his people. Number two, therefore, we can join him in the battle. Therefore, we can join him in the battle. We're going to think about the difference that this makes under these three headings. Or rather, the difference that this makes, knowing that God the warrior fights the battle for us, makes us, number one, confident. It makes us, number two, resilient. And thirdly, it makes us expectant. If we understand what this text is teaching us, these are the three things that we'll expect when we join him in the battle. So number one, it makes us confident. Joshua and the Israelites had real enemies, real flesh and blood in front of them. Joshua and his army had to go to war. They had to pick up their swords. They had to march. This was not an act. This was not a song that they sang just because they felt it in their hearts. Israel were required to take up the sword, to take a deep breath, and to get stuck in. They had to take God at his word and they just had to go for it. They had to cross that line of comfort. They had to wave comfort goodbye. They had to push on towards the enemy. 
But one thing we have to remember is this. God fights for his people, not in place of them. I'm going to say that again. God fights for his people, not in place of them. Amazingly, what we see here and what we see in the rest of Scripture is that God fights together with his people. And it's not like they're even evenly, evenly matched. God and Israel together fighting. You do this bit and we'll do this bit. But yet in his ways, in his wisdom, God requires his people to take up the sword, metaphorically for us, of course, and take to the battle. It's not even evenly matched. Just like um, my daughter will help me in inverted commas, help me unload the shopping. If I come home, for example, with a bag of groceries and tins, she loves to come along and, and lift out the peas and lift out the cheese and all these other bits and pieces. Now, I could do it all on my own, but she enjoys helping me and learning all the bits and pieces. And if anything, it slows me down. Um, but something like that, that is, is, is not evenly matched, but God is fighting, Israel are fighting, and somehow or other, God uses Israel in the battle. He calls them, he leads them into the battle. That's why knowing that God fights for his people gives them confidence. Look at verse 8. God says to uh, Joshua, familiar words, he says to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man shall stand before you. Do not fear See, that's not a new, a new word for Joshua. It's not a new promise to him, is it? It's been given numerous times already. But at that moment, with the biggest enemy that they have faced to date, Joshua and Israel needed to hear that familiar truth again, that familiar promise spoken over them again within the new context. They needed to hear it again. And that's why I was saying, maybe there are some of you here this evening who need to hear the same thing again. You need to hear that same truth, that same promise stated afresh to you. The same truth from the same God of the Old Testament spoken to you tonight. Do not fear. Do not be frightened. Be strong and courageous. Do not be dismayed. I am with you. You know these things already. I've preached on these things already. But whatever it is, maybe a new situation you're facing, a new trial you're going through, maybe it's a new challenge in your life, maybe it's the same old battle just reared its head again. Do not fear. God says, I am with you. I've got you. I'm fighting for you. Look at the effect of knowing this, the effect this has on Israel, at the very least, in verse 9. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, listen, having marched up all night from Gilgal. They marched all night. And the commentators tell us that it was largely an uphill march from a lower position to a higher position, probably something in the region of 35 kilometers. 
as soon as they heard that God is fighting for them, as soon as those promises were spoken over them again, they got up and they went out to fight. Can you see how this inspires such confidence in them? They were ready to rock. They were ready to go into battle. They were prepared to give themselves in the fight because they knew that God was fighting for them and he had already given himself to the fight. There was no holding back. There was no paralyzing fear. Off they went. No doubt there was fear in some measure, but not enough to hold them back from obeying God. As Christians, we need to be careful to understand what is our fight. What is our fight? We are not, by the way, just to be clear, required to take up arms and go to physical war. That's not what we're saying here. We have to describe and understand our fight from a New Testament perspective. And our fight is this. I'm going to give you a broad sort of brushstroke about what fight is for us, for you and me here this evening. Fight for you and me is your calling to be a disciple of Jesus, your calling to be a follower, your calling to be faithful to him, your calling to swear allegiance to him, your, your commander-in-chief. When Jesus said to his disciples, come and follow me, he's essentially saying, come and join the battle. Why do you think it is that the Apostle Paul describes the need of every Christian is to have the armour of God? You know, the, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the, the sword of the Spirit? It's because he knows, like Jesus, that the Christian life is a fight. The call to love God with your heart, soul, mind and strength. The call to push back the darkness to make disciples in Jesus' name. That's a fight. According to the Gospel of Matthew, on the mountain before Jesus left his disciples, he, he gave them what's commonly known now as the Great Commission. Matthew 28. Jesus sent off his disciples. And he said to them, go and make disciples of every nation. And he finished it by saying, I am with you always. Go and make disciples. Enter the arena. Enter the ring. Get fighting. But I am with you always. It's the same promise that God gives to Joshua here in Joshua chapter 10. See how that inspires confidence. The fight looks different for each of us, depending on your vocation, depending on your calling, depending on your gifting, depending on your personality, depending on your opportunities. That's why it's difficult to compare. We're all different. And yet the fight is real. But wherever we are on the battlefield, we may fight with confidence because God is the warrior who fights for his people. Therefore, we fight with him. Gives us confidence, number one. Secondly, I said, gives us confidence knowing that God, the warrior, fights for his people. It gives us resilience. It means that we can withstand setbacks. It means that we can cope with small, quote-unquote, failures. 
They're like this, quote unquote, because they're not really failures when you look at the grand scheme of things. But when you know that God fights for his people, you build resilience. This means that you will not become deflated or you will not become shriveled up inside like an old balloon that's lost its air. When you understand that God the warrior fights for his people and when you understand therefore we join him in the battle, it will become increasingly hard to take you down. We've already seen in chapter 8 a few weeks ago that Israel messed up. They suffered a setback when it came to Ai. Remember they tolerated sin in the camp and God let them be defeated very briefly. Could have been devastating for them if it was not for the fact that God the warrior fights for his people. Failures may be completely unintentional for us. Our failure on the battlefield may be completely out of our control. Our failures, however, may also be the result of our sinfulness. It may also be because we go rogue against the command of our battle leader, King Jesus. But whatever the cause of our failure, God the warrior fights for his people and therefore we join him in battle. Maybe you need that this evening, to hear, to hear that truth. Maybe you need to hear that the failures, your failures on the battlefield, in your Christian life, they do not mean that God is done with you. Maybe you need a fresh reminder of the fact that you are invited into the battle because God the warrior fights for you. And so we're going to pray this together as part of our prayer at the end of this sermon. We're going to ask if you feel that you need more resilience in your life, that your failures just deflate you like an old balloon. We're going to ask for the Holy Spirit to impact you deeply with this truth, to kick start a growth spurt of resilience in your life. Knowing God the warrior fights for his people and that we are called to join him in that battle gives us confidence. Number two, it gives us Resilience, thirdly and finally, coming into land just now, it makes us expectant. Expectant. You might think that sounds very similar to confidence, confident, expectant. And it is similar to confidence, but it takes confidence further. Expectancy is when God's people expect to see the fruit of the victory of Christ in their own lives. They expect it. I just want to be clear before we go any further. There does exist certain strains of Christian teaching, certain streams, if you like, of Christian teaching that emphasize victory. It's all you hear about. Certain types of Christian teaching overpromise what a Christian may expect in this life. They will promise things such as total victory, complete healing, promise to you. That's what they'll say. It's been summarized and sometimes caricatured as health and wealth teaching. 
this promise that you will have victory in all areas of your life, including and guaranteed to include your health and your bank balance. And you can see why people who get it, people get attracted to this kind of teaching. You can see why it has many adherents over the world. So I want to be clear, when I say victory, I'm not referring to what you might find on the God channel at 10 p.m. or whatever time it happens to be. However, also within wider Christian circles, we see the opposite pole or the opposite reaction. What I would call this evening ultra-conservative rejection of any form of longing or any form of expectation or any of that sort of notion. This rejection that we may see any victory or experience any success or see any fruit in this life. Instead, this ultra-conservative rejection is a form of stoicism that teaches you to grin and bear it, to suffer well, because all the blessings you will ever receive are completely stored in the next life. None of it's for you now. But I put it to you this evening, that both extremes are wrong. The health and wealth on one side and the ultra-conservative stoicism on the other side. According to Jesus, when he announced the beginning of his ministry, he said, the kingdom of God is near you. It is among you. We've just prayed in the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is in our own temporal experience. May some of heaven come down to us more and more. That's what we're asking. And so knowing that God the warrior fights for his people that will cause you to become expectant for what he will do in your life and in your church. Now, we're not saying that you'll become totally victorious in all areas, that it's somehow guaranteed to you. It's not. But because God, the warrior, fights for his people, and we see this in the gospel, there will be areas of your life many areas, many situations where you can expect to see substantial victory or healing or fruit or whatever you want to call it. Maybe it's just a problem with words. But because God, the warrior, fights for his people now, we may expect the effects of this victory now. And we see this in the prayer that Joshua uttered in verses 12 to 13, where he prayed, it said, for the sun to stand still. But if you read the words of the prayer carefully, it almost sounds like a command. That he's speaking, if you like, to God or the sun and the moon or whatever it is, and saying, stop. Joshua is so expectant that he utters this amazing prayer for the sun to stand still to allow his army to finish the job. By the way, this is not a model prayer for us to adopt as New Testament believers, but it does show what expectancy looks like. From time to time, God imparts to the church and people within the church spiritual gifts of faith. Faith for a certain moment, for a certain season, which gives that individual such a deep certainty that a thing will happen, that when they come to pray, they are full of expectation. That may not happen to everybody. It may only happen once, if ever. 
But that's what expectant prayer looks like. How does this apply to us in our life, this expectancy? Remember a few moments ago I said the broad definition of a fight for us is what it means for us to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a faithful servant, to serve him in heart and soul. So what will it look like for us to have victory in these areas? Maybe for you, victory is needed for an area in your life where you find it hard to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Maybe for you, victory in your life is needed for an area where you are in a destructive habit or in a certain behavior or a pattern of sin that you are finding it difficult to attack. Maybe victory for you will be in an area of physical or mental struggling. Maybe for you, victory will be in your desire for more effective evangelism. But because God is the warrior who fights for his people, and because that is shown to us fully and completely in the cross of his son, Jesus Christ, we may expect victory in all of these areas, if not in completeness, certainly in substance, progressive and certain victory in these difficult areas of our lives. Maybe your hope is that our church will be built up. We can expect victory in that. Maybe your need is, is for victory in relational breakdowns or, or, or conflict resolutions. You can expect victory in those relationships. Maybe it is with family issues. You can expect victory in those issues. The more you understand that God, the warrior, fights for you. And therefore, you join him in the battle. The more you can expect confidence in your Christian life, resilience in your faith, and expectancy that the victory of Jesus can and will be applied to all areas of the fight. We're going to pray together in a few moments and ask for God's Holy Spirit to apply these things to us. Um, the guys are going to come up just now and, and, and lead us in a bit of music. But as they do that, I just want to give you a few moments to respond to some of these things that we've been learning through this, this text. And I just wonder as we've gone through it, is there a specific area in your life where you need to know and experience and take down within you something of this victory that God has fought for you. Maybe there's an area of your life that you just find is resistant to anything you've tried to do. But I believe God, through his Holy Spirit, wants you to know there is no part of your life, past, present, or future, that is resistant to his grace and his love and his forgiveness and his power. Nothing. 
Maybe you need more help to become resilient. That your failures have deflated you like that old balloon. And again, in a few moments' time, we're going to pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will fill you with such confidence and such hope that you'll no longer be defeated by your failures. So why don't you stand with me just now and uh, we're going to pray together.